Why is it that we have so many bullies and heavy-handed leaders in the church? Could it be that we've elevated a model of leadership that has everything to do with the world, but nothing to do with Jesus? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce. And joining me today is Lance Ford, a pastor, church planner, blogger, and co-founder of the Centralized Conference in Kansas City. Lance is also the author of the 2012 book, Unleader, which was published long before the bully pastor phenomenon became daily news. It was before scandals involving Mark Driscoll or James McDonald or Dave Ramsey. But back then, Lance began noticing something amiss in evangelicalism. It seemed everyone was obsessed with being a leader. Books on leadership hit the New York Times bestseller list. Conferences on leadership were booming. But books on discipleship and being a servant like Jesus? Well, sadly, they were about as scarce as the servant leaders they aimed to create. And now we're living with the results. We have pastors made in the image of superstar CEOs, or as Lance writes, we have leaders who are addicted to leadership. They may be sincere in their love for Jesus, but in Lance's words, they're drinking punch that's been spiked. So friends, what does it mean to lead like Jesus? And how do we wean ourselves of this toxic addiction? Well, I'm extremely excited to dive into that with Lance Ford. But first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marcorda Barrington. Judson University is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. Marcourt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcourt, are men of character. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me is Lance Ford, a pastor, church planter, and blogger. He's also the author of the 2012 book, Unleader, Reimagining Leadership and Why We Must. And just recently, he released another book with co-author Rob Wegner and Alan Hirsch called The Starfish and the Spirit, Unleashing the Leadership Potential of Churches and Organizations. So Lance, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you join me. Oh, well, it's an honor to be with you, Julie. I've been looking forward to visiting with you. Well, after reading your book, Unleader, I have to say I've been very much looking forward to talking with you. And I think I said uh, in one of our email exchanges that uh, I was laughing and crying at the same time. <laughs> More <laughs> laughing, but thinking I should be crying, but this is probably uh, my mechanism for dealing with it. But we, we're clearly in a crisis in the church. It seems like every day we have another scandal that's unfolding and a lot of it centers often around the top leaders. You say one of your basic premises is that as a church culture, we've become addicted to leadership. Would you explain that and how this developed? Well, I certainly believe that we are addicted to leadership. And I kind of pinpoint it back, Julie, to the church growth movement that, that really started in the late 1960s and started gaining steam in the 70s. My alma mater, Fuller uh, Seminary, was the center of the Institute of Church Growth, uh, Donald McGavern. And, and so the church growth started becoming a thing uh, till by the 1980s. It gave way to the seeker movement and all these other 
kind of augmented uh, systems of church growth. But it wasn't long until in the 80s it spurred out what I call the leadership industrial complex in the church so that pretty much every training that you hear about, all the conferences, everything, it's leadership, leadership, leadership. And uh, it's just become an addiction. It's become an obsessive addiction for staff members, for pastors. Uh, the mantra, everything rises or falls on leadership. I think a lot of pastors believe that's probably in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, it's just been drank like Kool-Aid. I was a church planter and I was a pastor for several years and pursuing that hamster wheel of leadership. And it just got exhausting. And I started realizing why I was so exhausted. And it was because it was so much about me. It was so much centered mm. upon, you know, me being the best me and and and, and all that pressure. And, and I remember reading one day this, the familiar passage, uh, here is my servant in whom I'm well pleased. And I thought, the Lord didn't say here is my leader in whom I'm well pleased. And so anyway, it's becoming a, an anti-obsession for me for about the last 15 or 16 years. It's really what I focus on. Well, when you talk about leadership being an addiction or an obsession, the first thing that pops into my mind, and maybe this is because I've done a lot of reporting on it, is Willow Creek Community Church. And I remember talking to some of the women there that had been abused, but they had been on staff for decades before they left. And and they said that leadership had become almost an idol there. It's like all we talked about was leadership. And we know that the Global Leadership Summit grew out of that. And we know how it all is kind of ending. I mean, the Global Leadership Summit has now tried to separate itself from Bill Hybels. I don't know how you can separate yourself from the DNA uh, of what he taught. But the Global Leadership Summit, I mean, started in the 1990s. At one point, it was like, I think, streaming to uh, over 120,000 people. It had stars like, and this is what was interesting. It wasn't anymore just attracting as speakers, your top name Christian guests, we had Bono show up, we had Bill Clinton show up, Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair. So it became a, a lot of these secular, you know, Bono claims to be a Christian. So I mean, there might be some faith there, but I, I it wasn't necessarily Christian principles we were being taught. It was business principles. In fact, I found an article that said uh, it was in a business magazine back from, you know, the early 2000s, 2010, maybe as late as that. But it actually called the Global Leadership Summit a pop-up business school. Wow. And it was talking about it very glowingly. Like there were there were businesses that weren't Christian at all showing up at the Global Leadership Summit. So what happens to the church when we begin embracing some of these business principles? How does it change the church? Recently, there was the CEO of, of this mortgage company called Better.com. I don't know if you heard this in the last couple of days, but he went on a Zoom call with he he invited 900 of their employees on it and fired them on a zoom call like 45 seconds into the call just ruthless just fired mm. them and said hey you know hey I, I know it's right before the holidays and everything i feel really bad about this but if you're on this call you're fired well oh to say the least he's gotten a lot of backlash but you know what julie that kind of thing could have happened in the church You've heard stories of it. I have mm -hmm. files of stories and interviews from this, the exact same type of thing happening. So when we start drawing from the world, we start acting like the world. And but it's it that that term business. Uh, I've heard tons of pastors say the church is a business, <laughs> and the church is not a business. It's a body. Mm. Uh, it's not an organization. It's it's an organism. 
You know, it is a living, breathing body of of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's funny that, and it's really not funny or surprising that you would mention Hybels, but, you know, one of his biggest books, Courageous Leadership, within that, uh, he he talks about the church as a business. And in fact, one of the things he said he finds it really, quote, interesting was that Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. And then he starts listing the Neutron Jack Welches and, uh, <laughs> you know, the Jim Collinses and all these yeah. others, you know, all these great leaders, Attila the Hun that we can draw from, you know, <laughs> and all these great leaders, you know, that we can draw, you know, universal truth from and apply it to the church. Mm. Uh, but the pause seems to never be that, no, the Holy Spirit has, and Jesus's uh, ethos and Jesus's character has to be the filter for all that business practice and acumen. But too often it's not. Hmm. I thought something that was really insightful that I read that, that you wrote was about how many times discipleship is mentioned in the New Testament. Yeah. You say it's mentioned, disciple is mentioned 260 times, follow me is mentioned 23 times, leader or leader only seven times. Yeah. You know, is discipleship like this idea of bringing people along and saying, you know, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Imitate me. Is that getting lost? What are we doing when it comes to discipleship? Or do we just not even care about that? Yeah, well, it's interesting that in the last couple of years, a lot of the bigger church conferences have started saying, hey, we miss discipleship. <laughs> you know, <we> start <laughs> discipleship. Like, oh, wow. You know, uh, how did we miss that? When it is, this is the thing that Jesus focused on. Once again, Willow, think back, what, 12, mm -hmm. 15 years ago, the reveal study, right? right. Their own study that they did on themselves. They had been the leader in teaching churches how to, quote, do church. And then they came back and they said, oh, well, we polled our people and we found out that they're actually leaving our church to get discipled. So, oh, we better figure this out. Oh, by the way, we have a conference for you. It shows you everything <laughs> right. we've learned in the last three months, you know, about ourselves. So they failed in disciple making. And then, of course, we see that they failed in leadership. And what are the two things that Willow Creek, and I'm not just trying to pile on Willow here, but mm -hmm. the two things that Willow's known most for is how to, quote, do church and number two, how to do leadership. And they've really been an abject failure in both on both accounts. And they've been the biggest influence in the North American church, if not the worldwide Protestant church in both of those aspects over the last 20, 25 years, too. I remember this is probably 20 years ago, and my sister happens to be in children's ministry, and she got some of the some of the children's ministry education that was coming out from Willow Creek. And I remember her at the time saying, this is terrible. We're to be discipling parents so that they can disciple their children. It was all about entertainment, and this needs to be the most exciting hour of the week for these children. And it's a very different model, but it was popular. Yeah. It was extraordinarily popular. And so it gave birth to all of these huge mega churches, one of them being Mars Hill Church, which has been getting so much attention lately uh, for the rise and fall of Mars Hill that CT is doing that podcast, which is an excellent podcast. And then I've been doing a lot of reporting on, you know, Mark Driscoll has just rebooted down in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it, honestly, it's almost Mars Hill on steroids because now he's like, let's get rid of an elder board because that can be trouble. But back in 2012, when you were beginning to write about a lot of this stuff, I'm guessing that there weren't a lot of people 
that wanted to hear your message because Mark Driscoll was huge then. He was, you know, started Acts 29 Network. His church was becoming this huge model. In our backyard, James McDonald, who I was told from people who knew the two of them, that James was like the big brother and Mark was like the little brother and the two of them together were just absolutely toxic. But when you started speaking about it, my understanding, you spoke at a conference up in Seattle and you, I think this was like 2014, you connected with some Mars Hill leaders and, and had lunch with them. I am very curious to hear what they had to say and what that lunch was like. Yeah, well, that was a real surprise to say the least, because some of my the, the background friends that run in the same circles and everything. And and uh, I think I shared with you that I had a long going relationship with Darren Patrick um, when mm -hmm. Darren first came to St. Louis. Um, and Darren was vice president of Acts 29. Acts 29. Yeah. So I had seen just tons of things for years. And I'm like, somebody needs to ride on this. Now, let me tell you, too, by the way, Julie, go try to sell a book like that back in 2012 to a publisher. <laughs> uh, you know, so my I think my it's, agent, brutal. it's brutal. It's brutal. I think my agent was ready to quit, you know, <laughs> and in one publisher that I had been published by before said, hey, Lance, this is great. This is true. The pastors don't want to read this. It's not yeah. going to sell. Yeah, exactly. It, mm -hmm. It's not going to sell. So uh, but anyway, uh, it was published in 2012 by Beacon Hill. And um, so in 2014, which I kind of looked back at the dates, and this would have been about that conference I was at in Seattle speaking out was, I don't know, about four or five months before the complete meltdown of Mars Hill. So a guy comes up to me after one of my sessions, said, hey, Lance, my name is blank. Uh, any, are you busy for lunch? And I'm like, no. You know, so could you have lunch with me? <laughs> me, singular. Okay. <laughs> so I said, sure. So we, uh, you know, we go down this, this street and uh, we go into this, this pizza place and I follow him and we go kind of down this back corridor. This sounds really shady, but uh, they had well, a they probably, I mean, understanding the culture of Mars Hill, mm -hmm. they didn't want to be seen with you they didn't that could be, have ramifications. They didn't, didn't want to be seen. So we go into this kind of, you know, back private little party room or I don't remember. There were six or eight other guys there uh, that greeted me when I came in. And I was like, mm. well, what's this? And uh, so we sit down. Then the guy that invited me tells me who he is. And he says, I'm blank. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at Mars Hill. I've been on staff is, is well over a decade. In fact, this guy's been featured quite a bit in the Mars Hill podcast that CT's just been doing. Mm -hmm. So he said, we're all on staff at, at Mars Hill. And we've been reading on Leader. Now mm. I was like, whoa, wow, whoa. So, uh, so I was, you know, I'm thinking, is this like a mob? Am I getting knocked off here? You know, is this, is this like, <laughs> is this like good fellas, you know, where Polly gets knocked off? So, but anyway, they just, they leaned into me literally, you know, physically mm. and just said, Hey, you know, thank you for writing this. Uh, I mean, they nailed the intent of the book immediately because they said two things, which was always in my mind when I was writing the mm. book was they said it's given it's, it's first of all it's let us know that we're not crazy mm. and that we're not rebellious mm. you know because they cut you know we didn't even have the term gaslighting back right. then but they're constantly being gaslighted in, in anytime they would bring anything up you know and so it, first of all this lets us know we're not rebellious and we're not crazy and second of all it's given us language and it's given us an opening of the scriptures to understand what has been going on around here and so I had that lunch with them, you know, and then four months later, then 
boom, you know, the whole thing. And I'm not saying that I was part of, of, of hell, but but it was really interesting. But the thing that blessed me about it was that uh, I'm going to tell you, Julie, um, I, 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 I had Mark Driscoll and what he was doing. I had him in my mind a lot when I was writing it. But even at that, over the years, there was not a lot of focus on this, on what you're doing now and, mm-hmm. and what I was trying to accomplish. That still was a lot of times just people don't want to hear this stuff. But now over the last, you know, five, six, seven years, it's it's changing because, like you said, you said that there was a before we went on air, you said that there was a scandal today, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. You just always wonder who's on deck because there's going to be another one. Somebody right now is going to be the next big name that's going down. And it's Mm -hmm. just happening and happening and happening over and over. Well, we've recreated a lot of Mark Driscoll's or James McDonald's or, you know, Robbie Zacharias, whatever you want to put in there. Um, We've created a model that I think now has given birth to. I mean, you you called it the leadership industrial complex. It's funny. I, I often refer to the evangelical industrial complex, which Sky Jathani uh, invented that term, so I have to give him credit. But, but yeah, I mean, we have an entire system that we call Christian that isn't Christian. And you mentioned Darren Patrick, who I guess you knew during your time in St. Louis and uh, was even asked to be on his advisory board. So you saw him sort of in the early days. Again, Darren Patrick, if you don't know who that is, he was a megachurch pastor, built the Journey Church from nothing to like five multi-site church, as we mentioned, the Acts 29 vice president, and then had this huge implosion in 2016 when his own elders removed him for the same sort of issues that in 2014 Mark Driscoll was removed for, this bullying and just abuses of power. I don't think it's it's a coincidence that they were both in Acts 29. I don't think it's a coincidence that they both happen to be friends. It seems like we're creating these kind of leaders. So I'm curious from you, who's had the opportunity to kind of see someone like Darren develop in a tragic story where he committed suicide after he was replatformed um, just about a year ago. Super, super sad. But what did you see the impact was on him? I'm guessing when he started, and I could be wrong, but were, were all of these same, I mean, I, these things don't happen overnight, but were a lot of these characteristics sort of fanned into flame, so to speak, by the leadership that he was seeing with Mark? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question about it, Julie. Uh, I mean, the Darren that I had gotten to know early on, he just was not that way. I mean, there was tons of humility and we become friends shortly after he moved to St. Louis, actually before he moved to St. Louis, when he was kind of scouting things out and and uh, when he decided to plant, he asked myself and a couple other pastors to just be his board of advisors for the first couple of years before they grew and developed and everything and and would have elders. Um, so I had this very close friendship and relationship with him and speaking into his life. But after the church started taking off and then they moved into Acts 29 and then when Darren's acclaim started rising, I started realizing I couldn't even get a hold of Darren if I would try to call him or wow. email him. There was this constant changing of emails, changing of phone numbers. You had to go through assistance. And uh, last time I talked to Darren was a couple of months before he killed himself. We had a, probably an hour phone call conversation, but I was then I was writing, I was working on the starfish in the spirit, mm-hmm. just finishing it up, literally getting ready to mail the 
manuscript in. And I asked him some questions. Basically, uh, Darren, everything you went through, everything uh, that, that caused you to get fired, uh, what have you learned from it? So he kind of, he touched on that. He says, yeah, man, I was, I own that. He said, I was a jerk. I was this and that. I said, so moving forward, what would you say to, you know, other young church planters? What are you saying to them? What do you, you, yeah, don't be a jerk. But it had nothing to do with the system. Hadn't learned a thing, Julie. And I was just really like, you know, I mean, like, really, bro? You don't realize that, that it's a king maker, that this whole system is a king maker. And he he didn't get it, man. He didn't he didn't get it. You couldn't see it. It's just unbelievable. Hmm. I was wrecked for a week after he died. I mean, hmm. um, because I was close to him, you know, and it's just a tragedy. You know, it's a complete tragedy. But I was mad, Julie. I was just angry at that system. Darren is culpable and he's had to lock eyes with the Lord and give an account for himself. But that system and, and Darren, there, there are other young church planters and pastors that have killed themselves, too. I know of, 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 of a handful and I know there's got to be a lot more that don't because it creates this kingmaker system that we're not we're not built to carry that weight. He, no human is built to carry that type of weight, and uh, it's it's evil. Um, I just go as far to say I, th- I think it's demonic. A lot of times, it's very antichrist in in a lot of the ways and the means of it. And the biggest thing is it usurps the authority and the place of Jesus Christ. And when you start getting into that territory, if you're not getting into the demonic, I don't know what you're getting into, and it's just too prevailing. So I loved Darren. And uh, when I think about him, it, it just it rips me. But uh, I believe the system had a lot to do with it. But I would say this for pastors and leaders, you are still, even if you're in a system or you've been raised up in a system, you're reading the scriptures every day. You're seeing what the Lord says. Mm-hmm. You're accountable to respond to Jesus first. And if you choose not to, that's on you. So I can understand guys going into this stuff. Uh, on, on the other hand, I don't have a lot of, of empathy for it because I still know it's a choice. There's something about that kind of power that we want that mm-hmm. touches something in the human that says, I, I, I want to, to be heard. I want to be in charge. I want to be big man on campus. It's not good. It's part of our fallen nature, right? I mean, Saul actually didn't want to be king, but the people wanted him to be king. But this whole kingship that we've built up, that we want a king and we've installed kings and it's destroying the kings. I mean, yeah. Saul was destroyed. David did a lot better with it, but he, yeah. he but had he some still, trouble with it too. He couldn't handle it either, right? And the right. man after God's own heart couldn't right. handle it, right? You could go for years on just the destruction, not just of the Darren Patricks and people like that, but of their families, the wives, mm-hmm. the children, that yeah. then totally deconstruct their faith because of this type of thing. It's it's wretched, you know, and, and it's very destructive to so many people. I think that's one of the things that the Mod- Mars Hill podcast has brought out so much, especially the final one, the aftermath. It really told some of the stories of the aftermath of what happened to so many of those families. And just to think that he's doubling down on it, you know, out in Arizona now, 
And then you have some very, and you've called them out, several name pastors that, you know, I've just backed him up and platformed. And I'll tell you what, I, I've got a, a there's a, there's a, a guy, he was a church planter I'd known back from Dallas, Fort Worth that several years ago, went to San Francisco and he and his wife planted and he's kind of grown a, a mega church out there. And I'm not kidding here, just about five weeks ago, he had a healthy church leadership conference. It was called the Healthy Church Leadership Conference. Guess who the headliner of it was? Mark Driscoll. Are you? Are we talking Larry Osborne? No, no. This is a, a no. <laughs> no, Larry a, stopped. He actually he was having Mark come in, but he stopped the he? whole okay. sticky sticky conferences. Sticky comp, right? I mean, right. It, it was way way later than he should have because it was after yeah. I did a lot he of should have. Larry Osborne should have known better than that. Oh yeah. And that's the thing we have still, and, and people don't like to hear this, but the reporting I've done is tip of the iceberg. We have created a system and there's so many people's livelihoods now tied to it. And it is going to take a very, very long time for this to, for us to actually dismantle it. If we ever do, if we don't dismantle it, we're just going to have a false church. Yeah. And it, it will be a revelation kind of false church, and it will just decimate people. And there will be a very small remnant of of believers left if we yeah. continue on the path we're on. I agree with you, Julie. One of the things I thought that was interesting is there, there's an article, and it's an old article now, but it's it was done by Ed Stetzer. It was seven top issues church planters face. And number four was systems, processes, and cultures. And he had a, a quote from Darren Patrick in there. And this is what Darren said, largely because most pastors don't know how to build systems, structures, and processes that are not contingent upon them. Most pastors can care for people, but don't build systems of care. Most pastors can develop leaders individually, but lack the skill to implement a process of leadership development. When a pastor can't build systems and structures that support ministry, the only people that are cared for or empowered to lead are those who are near the pastor or those very close to the pastor. This limits the size of the church to the size of the pastor. So again, we've got to like get this team where you pastor these people and then they pastor others and then so on and so on and so on, I guess. But again, we're talking about building a system where the pastor, and actually recently I talked to a pastor and he's, the church is so large that he can't pastor anymore. And so I guess I'm wondering when we, we've built these structures that are so large, it seems like we do need processes and all these things. Uh, is, is there a reason, and I'll just let you speak to this, like the whole thing with the mega church, you're saying the church is a family. I mean, how many families are 7,000? You know, how many families are 20,000? I mean, is, is there something just inherently wrong with having a megachurch? Well, I think that, you know, that one of the things is that, that it's, and, and I think that COVID, the pandemic kind of has forced this issue on a lot mm -hmm. of pastors and a lot of the leaders. Coming out of it now, you're seeing some churches that are just kind of doubling down on what they were doing before, you know, mm -hmm. as far as the... Info, infotainment and, and preachertainment and everything. There are others, and I have some friends that are mega church pastors that have, that have really reflected and are coming back and saying, "This has opened my eyes to see that we weren't even designed the way that the Lord would have had us designed." And a lot of them are moving to more micro church type of 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 structures and and, and systems. And how do so, you do that when you're a mega church? How do you move towards a micro church? 
I think we're going to have to look back. I mean, I, I'm working with a lot of churches in this mm -hmm. and we're trying to help them. You know, uh, it goes really deep. But w number one, the first thing has to do is, is that senior pastor and those, those other, quote, executive leaders. They have to take a whole look at their leadership system. First of all, they got to lay their crowns down and they have to mm -hmm. lay down their rank based titles and their rank based ways and move to more of an organic familial system. And that's the language that you see throughout the New Testament. You see brother and sister. Why? Because these are your brothers and sisters. This is a family. And it's interesting that, you know, that quote uh, from 1 Samuel, I think it's 8, when Israel's asked for a king and the Lord mm -hmm. says, okay, go give it to them. Yeah. But tell them what this king is going to do to them. He's going to take your wives. He's going to take mm -hmm. your sheep. He's going to take your, he's going to take everything he's got. Because he says, and the Lord says, his heart will be raised up above his brothers. Hmm. And that's the thing. And that's what happens is these positions, these rank-based systems, that we've really created one role. Uh, and if you wanted to, you know, if, if, if you want to advocate for the five-fold ministry, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, a lot of people call it APES now. But we still highlight one gift. We highlight that pastor. You know, it's it's I think Frank Vola, uh, Frank Viola calls it sola pastora, you know, is is what's happened. And so we we have one one man rule and some groups like Acts 29, Driscoll, they would have this phrase of uh, plurality of elders mm -hmm. with first or chief among equals, which is just a joke. I mean, it's really it's just <laughs> right. It's well, then it's not a it's not, it's not a plurality, you know, but just all this. Oh, except a first, you know, no, that's that's a benevolent dictator is what that is. So we have we, we have to go back and we have to totally look at our rank based systems. We have to we have to move into true mutual accountability that is 100 percent mutual accountability. And that's one of the big problems that happens and you hear it, Julie, you know, when the Rabbi Zacharias's fall or when the, the Carl Lentz's or, you know, all these that go down as we people start talking about, well, there needs to be accountability. But even like within Mars Hill, and you could hear it on the Mars Hill uh, podcast, is uh, Sutton Turner, who was the executive uh, pastor. Uh, I love that title, that. executive pastor. Executive. Too, just <laughs> I mean, it sounds so servanty, doesn't it? It does. You know? Yeah. Think of these terms that we use. These uh, I just call them Babylonian terms, you know, but hmm. they're pagan. That's so, interesting so you say that because somebody said to me recently, Julie, we're living in Babylon. This is Babylon. And this we're drawn from Babylon. Mm -hmm. We really are. We're drawn from Babylon. We draw from their ways and their means. So Sutton Turner, I mean, there was one you know, point where they're starting to, Mark's getting quote out of hand and 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 he said, well, you know, we need to we need to work on accountability. So let's get some and he and he named two or three suggestions of outside pastors that Mark mm -hmm. could be accountable to. Of course, Mark said, I'm not going to be accountable to anybody that has a church smaller than mine. Yeah. You know, which I mean, come on. So but but the thing about it is that was the suggestion. And that's what happens so often in these in these systems. So let's go back to that quote that Stetzer quoted uh uh uh, Darren Patrick about systems and structures, but mm -hmm. these systems of accountability that they put in these type of churches, it's always accountable with someone that is at quote your level 
or above, which levels are a problem in the first place, rather than a mutual accountability. And so they try to go outside the church and get some board of governance of people that don't even live there, that are not even part of the faith community, and are never going to get reported the truth about what really is going on, much less are they going to hold their buddy, his feet to the fire, because these mm -hmm. guys are inviting one another to speak at their churches and at their conferences, and there's good old buddy, good old boy stuff going on. You're not going to hold anybody accountable. No, you should be held accountable to your brothers. And we find out over and over and over in the New Testament, all the one another's, it's mutual accountability. Even church mm -hmm. discipline should be brother to brother, sister to sister. It, the church, it, the body can't hold itself accountable. The systems are just really messed up. Well, it's interesting when you mentioned that whole, I think they had a board of overseers at Mars Hill. Right now, it's Stephen Furtick's church. He has some, you know, group of other mega church pastors who set his salary. So you can be, you, you can rest assured, he, his salary is being set by other mega church pastors making ridiculous salaries too. But what you're talking about is really creating a new culture, one that's not this leadership culture where you have the pastor slash CEO that's being exalted and these corporate business principles, you know, really imported from the world, nothing to do with scripture. If anything, scripture turned those upside down into more of a servanthood culture. One of the things I thought so interesting about what you wrote is that the word servant or servanthood, I mean, that's got really negative connotations to us. I, I doubt it was really more positive in the Greek culture to be a servant or a slave, which are the, the terms that Jesus uses. But it's like we also aren't looking to Jesus as our model. So how do we go from where we're at right now? And how do we transform our cultures? Because again, it's a culture. A lot of people think, oh, let, you know, just fire that bad toxic leader at the top and it'll be over. And what they don't realize is he has mentored, he has discipled some people. There is some discipleship going on. It's not discipleship of Jesus. It's discipleship of leading like the toxic leaders. So we have a bunch of mini toxic leaders throughout that system, and they've all been basically conditioned to act like their leaders. So how how do we do it? How do we go from a leadership culture to one that's servanthood culture? Yeah, and it is cultural. I could not agree with you anymore that it, it is culture. You know, it's like a greenhouse or like a Petri dish. And so if you if you have a certain atmosphere, it's going to easily breed, a, you know, a, a certain type of, of seed or, or plant. And so, you know, I mentioned about roles versus rank. And that's one of the things is that to change this cultures, we have to review leadership rather than looking at it as being on top. We have to flatten the thing in the first place and realize that we are equals. In fact, um, I like to say it's it's circle leadership. Really, we, we mm -hmm. gather we gra gather in circles. Uh, but one of the role changes is that leaders have to start looking at themselves as as equippers instead of directors. And this mm. goes back to Ephesians 4. It's the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher are there to equip the saints to do the work of serving. And so you start changing your role from being a person who manages to a person who says, no, I'm here to help the people around me and make sure they're resourced, make sure they're equipped, make sure they're prayed for, make sure they're encouraged. 
it changes your role. It's not my job to boss people or to manage people. And that's one of the things is management has invaded the church in, through these mm. leadership systems in the last 30 or 35 uh, years, and which basically management systems treat people as if they're not adults. And so you've got mm. men or women that are able to have a mortgage, raise kids, grill steaks without burning the house down, shave their legs or their face without slitting their throat, get to work on time, <laughs> you know, and do all these adulting type of things. But once they get in, let's say they're a church staff, once they get mm -hmm. in there, they're not adults. I have to tell them hmm. when to be where and what they can do and what they can't do. And there's usually only two adults on a lot of these churches teams. It's the past senior pastor and the executive pastor, right? And which is mm. a, a whole nother thing we could talk about for a couple of hours. The whole executive pastor uh, position that's been invented over the last 20 or 25 years. Some people call it the quote second chair and which is just a total mythological figment that is not biblical whatsoever. Mm. But those tandems have really come together over the last 20 years and reinforced and, and created even worse problems than we had before. You talk about the Nicolaitan church in your book on leader. And I was fascinated by what the Greek word, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but I would love for you to explain that as opposed to the word that we get lay, laity from, because I think that's profound yeah, yeah. what's there. Well, think about the, the prefix Nike or Nikos. Which, you know, N Nike shoes, for instance, it means victory. Uh, Laos, people. So the Nicolaitans, it was victory over the people. And so there are a lot of scholars that believe that what that was referring to was this, this hierarchical system that was invading the church, which really dominated people. It ended up giving way to the clergy-laity divide that is so mm -hmm. strong because— Early on, and when you study church history, you start seeing uh, from Ignatius, uh, Cyprian, others, they really did push a very strong hierarchical system early on. So it didn't take long within the first 125, 200 years, even before Constantine, that there was a strong hierarchy starting to develop that was killing the priesthood of the believer. And then a lot of people, you know, we want to give credit to Martin Luther for restoring the priesthood of the believer, but he only restored the priesthood of the believer as uh, regarding soteriology or salvation. Mm -hmm. He did not restore it. In fact, he was an anti-advocate when it comes to restoring the priesthood of the believer ecclesiologically. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we've had all these reformers and everything, and it's interesting because like an Acts 29 group, they, I mean, the, the young, restless reform. So many of these guys, and they are guys, uh, have just fed on the language of the reformers, which is very strong about one man hierarchical rule. And uh, it very well could be, um, you know, the sin of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord said, I hate it. Now, I'm sure the critic is thinking right now, this sounds great, right? This, this sounds very beautiful. We have more of an egalitarian uh, type structure. And that would be wonderful to work within that structure. But practically speaking, and I've heard this a bunch, there is an aspect to church that it is a business. We have to raise money and we have to pay people. And, and, and maybe that's a whole other discussion of, you know, the, the, the profession of pastor, uh, the profession of being a staff member and so forth. But for that, that person who's saying this isn't practical to do it this way, 
speak to that critic, but also, I, you know, I'd love to have examples of people who have done it right and changed, made that shift. And here's something beautiful that's come out of it. The, the latest book, The Starfish in the Spirit, we really, my, myself and, and Rob Wegner and Alan Hirsch, we really do get very practical and deal with those type of things in that book. But it takes a lot of work to change a culture, you know, and, and I, I, I try to be honest with leaders and say, you know, Jesus didn't say it's difficult to put new wine into an old wine skin. He said, you can't do it. Hmm. That's the hard thing is if it is completely hardened and it's become an old wineskin, I don't know that you fully can change it over. Um, a lot of the work that I've had in the last few years with churches that really, and leaders that, that are embracing this, have done very well in changing a lot of their systems and really changing the ethos of their church. But some of their best success has been the, the launching other churches and new churches that from the very get go and from the very outset are walking this way. Are you saying yeah. some of these churches just need to close instead of, I mean, because what I'm seeing is we're putting a lot of energy into keeping some of these churches afloat. One of the, one of the blessings I think of Mars Hill was that it imploded. Yeah. Um, but I'm seeing with that. Yeah. And, and then there were little churches that were able to be birthed out of it. But what I'm seeing is we've talked a lot about Willow Creek. They majorly centralized and fired a bunch of people and they're like, hey, we're going to do this from <laughs> from the main church. That's going to be a lot of the preaching center. We get rid of a lot of these campus pastors, or at least they won't function quite the same way. They're still there. They still have campus pastors, although mm -hmm. they've replaced a number of them. But do we just need to maybe just say this isn't working? Is it the courageous thing just to shut it down? Well, that's happening. That's happening in a lot of cases. And so I have discussions quite frequently, and there have been cases where the churches are saying, hey, we, th we think our season's done here. Hmm. And uh, in fact, yeah, I was just dealing with a church uh, in New Orleans just a few weeks ago that that was the case, and they were just shutting it down, and they were going to basically give all the assets away to some new church planters that they felt like were going to do it in a different way. Um, so I That's think radical. it's yeah. very courageous, but it's very mm -hmm. admirable, right? right. You know, to, to see that because that's stewardship. It's a stewardship issue and just prolonging it and just keeping it going and keeping it going because you can't change it. Because here's the deal is that there, we can never forget this, right? That the people, Israel's the one, they, they're the ones that wanted the King. And, mm -hmm. and so there are people in in certain churches that they do they they want somebody to run the show for them entertain me every sunday preach to me give me the music i want give me that you know disney on jesus church ministry for my kids <laughs> right you know right. give me all this stuff you know they want that you you know you can't be a purveyor of religious goods and services if they're not some consumers ready to partake so it it kind of goes hand in hand, you know. We mm -hmm. we we've made these kings, and there's always another guy in line ready to take the crown and the scepter. Unfortunately, well, I'm glad you made that turn because we've been kind of hard on leaders, and I think it's deserved. I think it needs it's a critique that needs to be embraced and needs to be discussed in the church. But let's talk about the laity. Let's talk about the rest of us, right? I almost feel like it's basically we're buying a concert. We buy it with our ties, but we buy this show on Sunday 
it makes us feel good, tells us about our best life now or how to fix our marriage or whatever. I, shockingly, I come back from so many sermons and I'm like, what was the passage of scripture? I missed that. What, what was he even preaching on? Like, even if they tell you to open your Bibles, you open your Bibles, but you never use them. But do we want to grow up? Do we want to grow up or do we want to stay babies where somebody's spoon feeding us and they cook the food for us, they prepare it and they put it right in our mouths? Well, and I love the way that you frame that because, you know, what's really interesting. It occurred to me a few years ago, Julie, that and you can think about certain churches. You've mentioned a couple of them. So, I mean, let's just say Elevation, uh, yep. Church of the Glades, I would say even Fellowship Church down in Grapevine, Texas. Uh, these theatrical shows that they put on week after week after week. I mean, jumping the shark, right? And then jumping the shark to jump the shark. Because <laughs> uh, you got to do something better every week, right, to get them there. Yep. Basically, what they are is we have had children's ministries and youth ministries that have been entertainment. You talked about earlier on in our visit here. And so now these when, once these people become adults, they're, they're expecting the same thing. So a lot of these a lot of these church services literally look like adult youth services. They are mm. literally like circuses. And so we've not raised up from early on our children. That's not been our aim. Our, our aim has been to present something they can't get anywhere else and to want more of it next week. But that becomes a big part of the problem, too, because what happens when somebody with more money and more backing moves into your city and pops up the next cool thing? That's what Hillsong is, song has done all mm. over the U.S. and all over the world, not had any investment into a community and pop in with millions of dollars and a Ken and Barbie church planter couple, and boom, you got church. Hmm. And it's not. They're planting worship services. They're not planting disciples that evolve into churches. And so I'm sorry. I'm really I'm really harping here, Julia. Well, but the, the problem is if we don't say something and if we don't speak out about this, it'll, it'll just keep happening. And to me, there is a there's a hope in this. The hope is that whenever something's falling apart. And, and I think we are falling apart. I mean, the pastoral model is falling apart. I saw a, a George Barna survey that came out uh, just like a week or two ago where it said 38% of pastors say that they're burned out and they've considered quitting in the past year. 38%. I mean, think about that. What happens if 38% drop out? I mean, it's seriously. But we're at a, a point after COVID, I think after the polarized political system where things are fracturing and they're beginning to crumble. But this is when you have an opportunity, like we do have things crumbling. And my hope is I don't I think it'll be longer than several years. I think it'll be a decade or more for us to really come to grips with it, for us to really say what we've built around the church and the structures of the church that have nothing to do with what it really means to follow Jesus or the church. They, they need to come down. But isn't there a hope, Lance, that, that out of these ruins, something beautiful can be birthed? There's no question. And I know I've sounded really dour here in this, in this conversation, but I am very hopeful because I know the stories of people I'm working with, churches I'm working with, um, some of my friends uh, that are on teams that I'm on. Uh, I, I'm ecstatic. I mean, I could jump out of my chair with excitement about the hope that I see. Uh, 
in some humble men and women that are saying, we have done it wrong. We repent of that. And that's one of the things, you know, is that Jesus in that famous Matthew 20 uh, passage, you know, when the disciples, I mean, Jesus is literally telling these guys, hey, I'm getting ready to die on the cross. You know, I'm getting ready to be assassinated. And it's like, they're like, oh yeah, that's going to be tough. Hey, uh, can I uh, be the secretary of defense? You know, when you set up, can I I be vice president? You know, (laughs) and uh, you know, Jesus stops us. And and one of the things he says to him, he says, when you turn, when you turn and realize, you know, the Gentiles exercise dominion over one another, it will not be this way among you. But the first will be the least and the greatest will be the servant. Uh, so, but it takes repentance. So that's one of the things. This is not just a systematic change. Oh, well, hey, that wasn't working. We need to change the way. No, we need to repent. We need to repent mm-hmm. of taking the king's crown and taking the headship of Jesus, taking his place. He wants to be the head of his church. There's one head pastor. There's one lead pastor and senior pastor. That job's already taken. It's Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. He's the chief shepherd. That's the only time you find that title anywhere in the scriptures. And that position's already taken. So when we start realizing also there's more positions than pastors, there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And when you look at Ephesians 4, you see that this is, we've made that into a leadership text. It's a body text. It's mm. a text about the body of Christ. And mm. so that means you may have, um, Joni Smith may be a second grade teacher, elementary teacher, but she may have an evangelistic gift upon her that is just as legitimate and just as strong as the guy that's setting up a tent, right? Uh, and and on and on and on about all these mm-hmm. gifts. And the Lord has put them into the body to go into the places that we live, work, play, hang out, and into the marketplaces. And it's a beautiful thing. And, 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 and when we start realizing that, and that our job as leaders that are even vocational leaders, my job is to equip and resource the Jonies. My job is to equip and resource these others and make sure that they have the tools in their hands. They have the, the, the encouragement and the prayer covering, et cetera, et cetera. It changes the roles of everybody on the team. And once again, the reason that so many pastors are quitting is because they're inundated with trying to you know, spin all these plates that they were never called to do in the first place. There's more team members there. Mm-hmm. If we let them walk out their roles, we let them have authority under the guise of mutual accountability. It's a game changer and it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more fruitful and there's so much more joy in the whole thing. Do you know one of the best places where where we found freedom to do ministry was in a vineyard church? When we were in our really? 20s, yeah, we were part of a vineyard. And my husband, who's a school teacher, he led a bunch of his students to the Lord. Before we knew it, we had like basically a youth ministry happening in our living room on the weekends. And they were staying there to like two in the morning. And we're like, man, we got to find a place for these kids. And I just remember the whole philosophy of ministry was trying to release the, us into doing ministry. So I remember talking to the pastors because we happened to be, my, my husband taught about 30 minutes away from where we actually lived. So a lot of these kids didn't live right in our, our community and it turned out that Vineyard was planting a church up north where my, my husband was teaching. So we ended up ministering there. But it, I remember talking to the pastor at the time and he said, force me to hire you. 
So in other words, start doing the ministry. And, and they, they used to say, you know, do ministry, allow people to do ministry and clean it up later. Like we try to clean it up and make it perfect before it happens. And that's not how it happens. It happens organically as the spirit moves. You know what I mean? We've forgotten how unpredictable the spirit is, that we don't know where it's coming from and we don't know where it's going, but we better get in tune with it and we better get our sails ready to catch it. And to me, that's what we were doing. And the Lord blessed it. And it was a wonderful ministry, but it wasn't controlled. And it was it was us as laity. We eventually, you know, came on staff part time, which is always we always joked because we put so many hours in, especially between the two of us. But it was it was wonderful. And, and I've seen ministry happen like that a number of times. But it's always been organic and it hasn't been top down. It hasn't been the leader telling me, the pastor saying, I've got a vision for you and this is how we do it. In fact, every time I've seen that happen and they give you the curriculum and they say you have to do this, this and this, it is so dead and so lifeless and so exhausting for everybody at the top. No question. But when they empower you to do ministry, John Wimber, who was the founder of the Vineyard, and we're not a part of Vineyard, haven't been for many years, and I'm, I'm sure it's changed a lot since we've been in it, but I loved what he said, is he said, the great thing about the kingdom of God is that everyone gets, everyone to, play. gets to play. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you why I know that, why I know that quote. <laughs> I was a I was a vineyard church planter. I don't, I, oh, I, don't I didn't you know, know that. that. No. I was, that's, that's why I was in St. Louis. We had planted mm. a vineyard church, but that was it. That was that everybody <laughs> gets to play. And, you know, and, and I know not to go on a, on a rabbit trail here, but I always love that story that Wimber told about after he'd been in church for a, quite a while, he walks up to the, to the, to the pastor and says, oh, yeah. when do we get to do the stuff? You know what I was going to say? Yeah. When, when, do we do, when do we do the stuff? And the pastor's like, well, what stuff? What stuff? Yeah. You know, healing <laughs> people and casting out demons and feeding the poor, you know, and doing all that. And the pastor's like, well, we just study the stuff. We don't do the stuff. We just study it. Uh, but that's what's so beautiful. And I think one of the beautiful things that John Wimber did, for those who don't know his story, I mean, he came out of the music industry and he didn't know anything about Christianity. He didn't even know what a Bible was when he went to get one. <laughs> he didn't even want to make sure he got the official one because he had heard about it, you know, but, but it's such a funny story. But what's so great about it is he comes to it with fresh eyes. And I'm like you, Lance, I grew up in the church. And, and I feel like, you know, we're in this period of deconstruction, right? Everybody's talking about deconstruction. And I find myself deconstructing to the point where I'm saying, what about my faith? And what about church and my experience of church? What about it is Jesus? What about it is Jesus? And what about it is the things that we built up around Jesus. So, you know, I write every day. I investigate and in all these things about all, all the corruption that's going on. But, but I have to turn that lens back on myself and say, what have I done? You know, what part of me, why am I struggling? Because I, I am struggling, you know. I mean, we, we lost our church. There's, you know, a sex abuse scandal there. And so we're in the midst of this, seeing a lot of ruins ourselves. And I'm thinking... This hurts, and it hurts my relationship with Jesus, yet I'm sitting there saying, Jesus is still there. And I think, you know, one of the best things for me is to go back and just look at Jesus and just read the Gospels again. And what a great time at Christmas to go back and read those Gospels and get reacquainted with Jesus, not all the things built up around him, but Jesus.
Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. And that's one of the things that when I'm working, coaching, training, consulting with churches or whatever, I say, look, one of the experiments I try to do is say, okay, for a couple of weeks, I'm going to ask you to read the New Testament. I'm going to ask you to take a translation that you're not used to, because that'll kind of help your fresh eyes a little bit. Do everything mm -hmm. you can to consciously read it like you've never read it before. Mm -hmm. Read the New Testament and then come back mm -hmm. and then look at what we've created under the guise of church and under the name of Jesus and ask the questions, how did we get this from this book and where mm -hmm. do we go? And that's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, it's very difficult, you know, mm -hmm. especially for veterans like you and I that have been around because all the all the answers and the definitions immediately spark in us when we're reading these scriptures. So it's very hard to read with, with fresh eyes, but but we have to start doing this and 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 asking questions mm -hmm. and saying, wait, has what we've created and what are we doing? Is it Jesus-y, right? I mean, is mm -hmm. this real is this the Jesus stuff? And I think that that's one of mm -hmm. the things is that what's happened and so much of the abuse that's happened via leadership is we have raised up the gifts of the spirit above the fruit of the spirit. And if the fruit of the spirit mm -hmm. is not the filter of the gifts of the spirit, Paul clearly mm -hmm. said, it's a gong show. That's all you're putting on every week is a clanging gong because you're not giving people Jesus. You're giving people yourself, mm. you know, and, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that mm. is dangerous there is I think that I, that very well could be what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain mm. is when you're wearing his name and you're going around doing things in his name, that's mm. just not him. It's just not of him and it's not his ways. I think that, you know, this kind of this Hebrew, the, you know, Hebrews shaking everything that can be shaken. So the things that can't be shaken will remain that we've seen over the last year and a half through COVID and other things. I think it's the I think mm -hmm. the Lord is I'm not saying the Lord sent COVID, um, but I'm saying the Lord is working in it. And he's even working in his church mm -hmm. to bring about reformation. So uh, I have a lot of hope in that. Um, but we've got to listen to what this we got to hear what the Spirit's saying. Hmm. Well, amen. I just, I second everything you just said. This has been a rich discussion and Lance, I feel like, like I've, I've gained a brother. Uh, I guess you've always been a brother, but it's, it's nice to get to know you. And um, I really appreciate your ministry and what you're doing. So God bless you. And I just pray that, that your message will increase and that more people will be willing to, to catch it because it's not your message. It's God's message. I knew I was going to connect with you. Uh, <laughs> I was looking forward to our visit and I totally feel like I have a have a cyst now and uh and it is good and 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 I look forward to getting to know you better but Julia I just got to tell you I I've been a fan I've been an advocate for a long time because you're doing hard bold work and you don't win awards doing this stuff you know you don't win popularity contests you know you don't get invited to speak at the biggest conferences doing the type of work that you and I are doing Mm -hmm. So I just appreciate you so much and just pray uh, the Lord's continual blessing and protection over you and your life and your family. Well, thank you, Lance. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce. If you'd like to connect with me online, just go to julieroyce, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. 
I'd also like to mention that December is a big month for us where we typically raise about a quarter of our budget. And right now we have a $10,000 matching gift. So if you give now to support this podcast and our investigative reporting, your gift will be doubled. So please consider giving a year-end gift to The Roy's Report. To give, just go to our website, julieroys.com, and then click on the donate button. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.